1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
0: David Adesnik is a senior fellow and the director of research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a think tank here in Washington, D.C. John Hanna is also at the foundation, serving as a senior counselor. Both David and John have spent time in government. David at the Defense Department during the Obama administration, and John at the State Department during the Bush 41 and the Clinton administrations, and in the White House during the Bush 43 administration. David and John just joined me to talk about an important aspect of the transition from the Trump to the Biden administrations. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's
1: time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. at that's Byte.com, that's B-Y-T-E
0: dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. David, John, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is uh, great to have you on the show.
2: Thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you, Mike.
0: So you are both associated with a think tank here in Washington called the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And the foundation, with you two as co-editors just published a compilation of a set of essays called From Trump to Biden, The Way Forward for U.S. National Security. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, that paper. But before I do that, before we do that, I'd like to do two things. I'd like to have my listeners get to know both of you a bit more and also get to know the foundation a bit more. So the first question for both of you is can you give us just some brief background on your careers up to this point, how you got interested in national security, what you've done,
2: etc, cetera, et cetera This is David, and yeah, so I guess it really began. I did a graduate school in international relations uh, came back I was overseas came back to the u s wanted to figure out what comes next, and I started working for a place called the Institute for defense analyses it's uh sort of low profile in a way. It's, it's effectively a Pentagon think tank. Uh, I was there for several years. Uh, I had a great opportunity to work on John McCain's presidential campaign. He is definitely sorely missed. I've been in a couple other think tanks. And then in 2017, I uh, landed at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies as director of research. As you know, our name suggests, we're for defending democracies. And that is something we've been doing for just about 20 years. And, you know, it's mainly conceived in terms of uh, threats from abroad, first from uh, Sunni extremists, also from Shiite extremists, especially in Iran. Um, But a bit depressingly, in recent days, we've seen that one of the, you know, the greatest threats to our democracy was uh, entirely domestic. And, you know, we had a mob storm the Capitol incited by the former president. So, you know, our focus is going to remain on national security, but really uh, a reality check. And David, you worked at the Pentagon for a while, correct? Yeah, I spent two years uh, in what's called cost assessment and program evaluation. I actually focused a lot on uh, Afghanistan and simulations, people trying to sort of understand insurgency, counterinsurgency and irregular warfare better. John?
3: Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, I've I've had one of, I, I guess, kind of a conventional Washington career for somebody who is not a career government person, but I've been in and out of government and in and out of think tanks. I came to Washington first from graduate school uh, to work at a think tank called the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is another uh, prominent organization in this town, uh, thinking about foreign policy uh, issues. And from there went to my first government job working in the Bush 41 administration, For a couple of guys that some of your listeners may know, uh, one was named Dennis Ross and the other is Bill Burns, who was just recently nominated to be President Biden's uh, director uh, for the CIA, Uh, worked for them on the policy planning staff at the State Department. From there, spent a couple of years, uh, crossed over to the Clinton administration and worked uh, directly on the staff of President Clinton's first secretary of state, Warren Christopher, and then uh, spent some years. I, I, I do have a degree as a lawyer, spent some time outside in, in uh, doing legal work, and then went in for an eight-year stint on the uh staff of uh, Vice President Dick Cheney in the Bush 43 administration, where I eventually ended up uh, spending President Bush's second term as the Vice President's National Security Advisor, and eventually then made my way to uh, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, to FDD, where I am now the Senior Counselor and very involved in uh, uh, their national security programs that really do now cover the waterfront, uh, not just in the Middle East, but a very robust program on China and Asia, as as, as well as Russia and, and Europe.
0: Okay, guys, the paper that both of you helped put together, what's the overall theme, which I think is is actually very important?
2: Well, I think it's that there's a We're trying to take a systematic issue-by-issue look at the administration that just concluded. And, man, do we have a lot of reservations about things that went on from, you know, lavish praise of dictators, insulting, long-standing Democratic allies. But in a way, it's, it's equally important to emphasize perhaps what some will not as naturally see, which are a number of achievements worth preserving, And the three we really focus on are, you know, the finally the reorientation of the U.S. to take the threat from Beijing seriously from the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, whether territorial aggression or, you know, incredible offenses against human rights. Uh, The second is the breakthrough in Arab-Israeli normalization, uh, the Abraham Accords. And finally, and this will be the toughest one because it's in some ways the most partisan issue, the the additional leverage that the U.S. now has vis-a-vis Iran that we shouldn't rush back to a deal without fixing the flaws of the previous one.
0: John, do you want to add?
3: No, I would just underscore that I think that basic theme that while there's a lot to take issue with regarding what's happened the last four years and with the overall Trump doctrine of America First, lots of falls, lots of miscues, a lot of it connected to the the personality and personal traits of the president himself that I think often worked at cross purposes to the rest of the administration, and all of it culminating in this awful event on January 6th uh, at the Capitol. But uh, having said all that, uh, you know what we've tried to do here is stand back and take it as objective a look at. As possible, not only at the the bad of the Trump administration, but at perhaps some of the important achievements, insights, and innovations that made in our national security policy, that the Biden administration ought to pick up on, despite the fact that it's uh, it's going to have a natural tendency uh, that's kind of par for the course for an incoming administration of a different party really to to want to reject out of hand or turn its back on just about everything that its predecessor did. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of the central message coming out of this. Let's not throw out uh, the babies that exist uh, in the bathwater of, of the Trump national security legacy.
0: I just want to pick up, John, on, on what you said. Um, you and I were talking earlier, and I pointed out that I saw up close and personal, the transition from Clinton to Bush, then Bush to Obama, and then I saw from some distance because I wasn't in government anymore the transition from Obama to Trump. And in each of those cases, there was there was a tendency to uh, to reject what came before. And I do think, as John you pointed out, that tendency is a natural one. And I am concerned that given given who president trump was politically that that tendency may be even stronger this time around? And I just want to get both of your reactions to that.
2: Sure. I mean, I think the impulse is understandable, right? When new administrations usually come in with a sense of conviction and mandate, especially if they're replacing uh, in, you know, an administration from the opposing party, they feel like they have a lot to change. And you know, even in that case, a while back when we had George H.W. Bush replace the Republican administration of Ronald Reagan, there was a lot of sense of a need to clean house, a desire to make a mark um, but despite all that, you know, I, I was looking over the, um, the comments that especially Tony Blinken made at his, uh, the, the designee for secretary of state at his confirmation hearing. And on some of these areas, you're seeing, you know, much less of that instinctive rejection and especially on a couple of the key areas we flagged, really that there's been a sea change on China, I think, in terms of the, the Washington conventional wisdom, you could see it in what Biden himself has said, what some of his top advisors have said, and you basically saw a fair amount of agreement with Blinken repeatedly affirming questions from senators whether the new administration would take the threat as seriously as the previous one did. And even on the Abraham Accords, he, he pledged he would want to move forward. Uh, Iran is a little different and more complicated, more likely to be debate. But, you know, I, I guess what I've seen so far makes me a little bit optimistic.
0: OK, guys, how is the how's the paper organized and where can our listeners find it if they want to read it and learn more.
3: Yeah, well, uh, Mike, it, it ought to be right on the, the homepage of FDD. If listeners go to FDD.org, they ought to immediately get a, uh, a banner that will allow them to click on from, from Trump to Biden. The way it's uh, structured, there are 25 substantive chapters that deal with just about, with with some exceptions, the full range of foreign policy challenges that were at the forefront of the Trump administration's national security strategy over the last four years. And they include really a, a pretty impressive stable of in-house FDD experts uh, writing on, on, on all of these issues. Uh, each of these chapters are designed to be very user-friendly. They're all structured in an identical way, a three-part structure of first setting out what it is the Trump administration did with respect to each issue. Uh, second, to assess how well it did, both the good and the bad, uh, the successes and the failures that Trump achieved. And then finally, to extract from that a set of recommendations on what the Biden administration might consider doing going forward, either to build upon what, what the Trump administration had done or to change shift course in order to pursue a more effective uh, U.S. policy in in that area. And I should also say that in terms of the The range of the essays, they uh, uh, cover the full uh, waterfront of regional issues in the Middle East and Europe, Russia, China, North Korea, Latin America, Uh, but then also a long list of really important uh, functional uh, issue areas from cyber through international multilateral organizations, through international law. Uh, arms control and proliferation and, uh, and jihadism uh, in the Islamic world so uh, uh, we've tried to make it as user friendly as possible and uh, you know people are able to go in and just click on that chapter in the volume that's of greatest interest to them.
0: I think the structure in each chapter which I think are terrific by the way I've not read them all but I've read a number of them is a good way to, to, to talk about them. So what I'd like to do, guys, is throw some out and get you to talk about what did the Trump administration get right, what did it get wrong, and how you guys think the Biden administration should think about that issue going forward. And let me start with maybe what Jim Mattis called the Big Five. And, and of the Big Five, let me start with the one that I see and I'm sure you do too, as the defining national security issue of our time, China.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we present exactly the same way. We think that you know the two major strategy documents from the Trump administration, the national defense strategy and the national security strategy from the White House and the Pentagon, they made it clear China is the key threat. It's our great power competitor. That's where our attention needs to be. And, you know, increasingly after a few years, this is starting to seem like conventional wisdom. Uh, But in fact, it was a pretty big change. If you look back to some of those documents, predecessors issued by Obama, you know, the emphasis was actually on cooperation with China. It was still sort of taboo to call it out as a threat. There was a sense that if we say China is a threat, then it will become a threat, a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, and, th- you know, there were in- indications that the Obama administration recognized a lot of the difficulties China was presenting, but they still couldn't put it front and center in the same way. And, th- and that was a major change. And then you started to see supporting re- uh, measures. You saw a lot of executive orders, some of them a little bit late in the game that, um, you know, Trump's personal preoccupation always seemed to be with the trade deficit, which I don't think we see as the big national security issue with right. China, that there are certainly economic sides. but. um you know, we have to stop intellectual property theft, them sending researchers to universities where they purloin sensitive research. But, you know, altogether, this was the turnaround.
0: And and what do you guys see as the fundamental competition between the United States and China?
2: I think it goes across the spectrum. And that's what makes it especially difficult that there's a military aspect with China, you know, you know even I think has more ships now in its Navy, although ours are more capable. Um, it's, across the economic domains, whether, you know, taking technology ahead of ours and the uh, ideological domain, right? They want to present their system of sort of prosperity uh, without freedom as a viable alternative that others should embrace across the world. And, you know, we have to push back and show that, well, first of all, it's only viable because they suppress their people so thoroughly and that freedom really does have a lot to offer. So every area. And then it's absolutely true that President Trump was the first to really
0: push, shine a light on China, you know, as as a national security competitor, as our biggest challenge, no doubt about it, and put a lot of pressure on China in different ways. But at the end of the day, the Chinese really haven't changed their behavior yet. So what would you like to see from the Biden administration going forward?
3: You know, the Biden administration clearly has its own critique of uh, what the administration got wrong with respect to China, even though, as David says, I think there is a grudging acknowledgement that they uh, got the central thing right that that China is not going to be a responsible stakeholder in a US led international order, but is instead a genuine near peer strategic competitor. That really is uh, maintaining some level of U.S. primacy in the global order is going to be the defining challenge for U.S. national security policy for probably the remainder of this of this century. What the Biden team has said that I I think we would agree with and and I think the co-authors of our chapter on China agree with is that uh, it really failed to take advantage of what is one of the crown jewels of America's strategic advantage with China, which is our our system of alliances and these very powerful democratic free market economies, both in Europe and in Asia that are on our side that we really failed to enlist in this burgeoning competition with China to bring pressure on China across the board. To be less uh, confrontational, adversarial, and aggressive in, in some of its uh, foreign policies, uh, that there was just too much picking picking of smaller fights with those allies, rather than keeping our eye on the on the larger strategic objective of pushing back against China. So, getting the allies on board in our China policy. Uh, is, I think, rightly a, a very important priority that the Biden administration is, gonna, is going to pursue. I think a second thing that has come out uh, about the nature of the competition with China is just how important multinational forums, what an important battlefield that is going to be for the coming uh, contest for primacy in the international system. Uh, this is something that U.S. administrations have uh, paid very haphazard attention to, while the Chinese, as we just saw in with the pandemic, with regard to the amount of time and energy they've put invested into the WHO to our detriment, that get, getting multinational organizations right, uh, getting in particular the leadership when elections come up and making sure that that we are pushing and advancing candidates uh, who are friendly to the West and to the US led international order uh, is going to be critical because these bodies are increasingly important uh, in setting standards and the norms by which the, the rules of international political and economic engagement are going to, to happen. And the U.S. just needs a much more systematic uh, policy toward these organizations, many of which are not very well known to the American people, uh, but, but really are going to be a, 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 a central uh, place where this strategic competition is going to be waged going forward.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David and John. Okay, guys, let me throw out another one here. Russia.
2: Sure. Um, that's an especially interesting one. Obviously, President Trump uh, really proved himself incapable of recognizing Russia's interference in the 2016 election. He you know, went to Helsinki and took the side of Vladimir Putin against the U.S. intelligence community and closed out his four years by denying that Russia was responsible for the SolarWinds uh, cyber breach, which is one of the worst we've ever had in the government. And so this was definitely a case, a classic, you know, praising an autocrat, um, neglecting human rights. And yet it wasn't the across the board disaster you would expect from those top lines, just because there were certain moves, well, where Trump did do put the kind of pressure we would want on Putin. There were hundreds of sanctions designations for a range of Russian violations from, you know, illicit finance, human rights, corruption. We sent lethal weapons to Ukraine. Uh, which was an important thing to help defend them. You know, they're still a country dealing with basically a Russian-sponsored and run invasion, uh, occupying part of their territory. So it's, you could say, a big opportunity lost. Uh, In some ways, it was terrible what was said. And I'm sure Russia could not be more delighted than seeing, uh, you know, violence in Washington. Um, But yet it was not the -the across-the-board meltdown one might have expected. And what do you guys want to see going forward from the Biden team? Well, uh, the reversal of some of those should be clear. Obviously, um, Biden has reason to address firmly the issues of Russian interference uh, to deal with human rights. You know, it was the Biden and uh, Obama administration that was hesitant to really back Ukraine as much as necessary. In terms of newer measures, well, I think one of the hard ones is really going to be sort of unifying Europe to deal with the threat. Just as uh, John pointed out with regard to China, right? If, if you spend all your time antagonizing our European friends, they're not going to be as effective as allies as they have you know for for generations. So um, they're often because they're closer to Russia because they are not as militarily strong because they're more dependent. Dependent on the Russian economy in certain ways, uh, hesitant to confront it. So it won't just be a matter of suddenly Biden comes in and everyone's glad to jump on board. There's going to be substantial diplom- diplomatic effort necessary. Um, and also on things like you know, Nord Stream, the big pipe gas pipeline, where Trump was pushing against it by the end, or at least his administration was. We've seen some signs uh, Biden will, but they it, it won't be so easy.
0: And then here's maybe the hardest one, right, which is Iran. Mm-hmm. Who wants to talk about that?
2: I guess I'll jump to start, and I know John has plenty to add, right? So that's an area where we think there were real achievements. We think there were really deep flaws in the 2015 nuclear deal the Obama administration negotiated. Um, You know, the Israeli uh, exfiltration, the Mossad's exfiltration of tens of thousands of files from a Tehran warehouse showed that uh, the regime in Tehran was really keeping a lot of the information it needed for its nuclear program together. Uh, based on that, the Israelis also found places where Tehran didn't declare uh, fissile material that it was concealing. It then tried to, uh, you know, sort of do a, a post hoc cleanup. But the IAEA, the UN inspectors, found this illegal breach of Iran's, you know, core commitments. So we really think it, it's a it's a deal that it was right to pull out of it if it was very hard to fix. And now Biden wants to go back in. The difference is after pulling out, Trump put a tremendous amount of pressure in the forms of not just restoring sanctions, but expanding them in ways that hadn't been seen before. It caused a major macroeconomic crisis, inflation, negative growth uh, in Iran and and tremendous dissent where people who were already deeply unhappy with an oppressive regime blamed it for everything that was happening. You know, the standard prediction was if we get tougher, there'll be an Iranian rally round the flag effect. Uh, But that didn't come about. And so now our our key advice for the Biden administration is, look, we know who the people coming back now are the architects of the first Iran deal, including the president uh, himself in certain ways. It's going to be very hard to look at your own handiwork that you thought was a major breakthrough and nonproliferation and say, this didn't really work. Uh, Their initial line is, okay, we'll go back and we'll lift sanctions and then we'll focus on a follow on deal that's better And our key point is you can't do that. You need leverage to negotiate with this extremely hostile, ideologically motivated regime. Uh, If you just lift sanctions, you're giving away the leverage you need to actually fix the deal.
0: And John, maybe the question for you on Iran is, it's not only the nuclear issue that the United States has issues with. It's Iran's behavior in the region. It's Iran's missile program. So there are bigger issues here than, than just the nuclear program. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, sure, Mike. Um, You're absolutely right that one of the big critiques of the original deal when it was first finalized in 2015 was its failure to deal with these non-nuclear aspects of uh, Iran's malign activities. And in the process of doing the nuclear deal and granting large-scale sanctions relief to Iran worth billions of dollars. The charge was the United States was then actually financing Iran's ability to further expand this very dangerous missile program, some of whose handiwork we've seen in, in Iran's recent attacks, not only against critical Saudi oil infrastructure in 2019, but against uh, U.S. military bases in Iraq in the beginning of, of 2020 that were all targets of Iranian missiles or uh, cruise missiles or drones. And, and of course, Iran's, uh, we were also helping in some ways uh, indirectly to fuel Iran's very uh, escalated aggressive activities in the region, uh, whether in Iraq, in Syria, the civil war there, in Yemen that civil war, or again, in Lebanon, supporting its its most important proxy, perhaps, Hez, Hezbollah. Uh, so, and that was a particular critique of our most important uh, traditional allies in the Middle East itself, who are closest to this threat. First and foremost, the Israelis, of course, but then all of our allies in, in the Gulf, starting with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates who all were very uncomfortable and uneasy with the original Iran nuclear deal and were very happy and pleased by the Trump administrations to get out of that deal. So one of the serious problems and conundrums that the Biden administration is going to have to try and deal with is not only the domestic opposition here in the United States, particularly amongst the Republican Party, but amongst some important Democratic senators as well, their opposition to the Iran nuclear deal dating all the way back to 2015, uh, but with the opposition of some of our most important friends in the Middle East itself who have to face this Iranian threat day in and day out, and for whom it's really a matter of lives and even an existential matter to to these governments in in the region so all of that is going to be terrible challenging uh, to to the biden administration as it both to attempts to de-escalate this brewing nuclear crisis with iran because it's right now as we speak expanding its nuclear program quite significantly and in quite dangerous ways biden administration wants to be able to focus domestically it doesn't want an iranian nuclear crisis and yet at the same time, it doesn't want to pick a fight with people at home, with people in the Middle East, as well as squander all of that tremendous leverage economically that David uh, spoke about before. It's, it's, it's a real challenge and, and problem for them.
0: Guys, we got about 10 minutes left here, and there's like a whole bunch of issues that I want to run through. There's a lot of great stuff here. So maybe we can just be a little bit more brief going forward. Let me throw out Sunni jihadism, and in particular, how you think about our future
2: role in Afghanistan and our future role in Iraq and Syria. Sure. We'll take a bit of a a lightning round approach. Um, You know, we have a specific chapter on Sunni jihadism, but really you want to look at the Iraq, Syria, uh, and Afghanistan chapters. And I think, you know, we give the president credit. He, you know, stepped up the war against the ISIS caliphate and at least brought its dismantling to an end. And then had his uh, sort of policy of constant reversals in Syria, which threatened to give ISIS a chance to rebound even more than it has. You know, it's shown some new strength in Iraq and Syria, but those reversals were reversed. We kept troops on the ground. Um, Afghanistan has really been an area where the failures of the Obama administration were reinforced by the failures of the Trump administration where there's no sense of how to actually get out of Afghanistan without effectively turning the country over to the Taliban. We, uh, you know, intelligence has been shaped to fit that, to tell ourselves that the Taliban may be divided from Al Qaeda. It hasn't, they're still as close as ever. Uh, there was a deal with the Taliban that Trump made, but it really just involved our concessions and no promises from them. Um, So we've had these two divided impulses. You know, on the one hand, it's, yes, we're going to stand up firmly to ISIS, and also we want out of the enduring conflict. And I think where we come down is there's ways to make this a sustainable fight, that, you know, it's only a few thousand troops in most of these theaters, and we don't have to rush to pull those out and redo what happened in Iraq under Obama, where we got down to zero and three years later, we had the Islamic State.
0: And it really, it really takes the president... Himself or herself to tell the American people why it's so important that we stay in these fights, right? It, it, it's not to follow public opinion, it's actually to lead it in the right direction. Yep. Is that fair?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, we said Syria should have been presented as a great victory. Trump should have said, hey, my predecessors each sent more than 100,000 troops to fight one of these battles in Iraq or Afghanistan. Look at Syria. We didn't really go up, up much above 2000, but we're getting the job done and it's not costing us and we can keep this up and win. Uh, it should have been a, a success that he he was talking about.
0: What about North Korea, guys?
3: Yeah, well, uh, North Korea is, I, I'd say, one of those very uh, mixed Bags. The president started out, of course, being told by President Obama, this could be your biggest challenge. Uh, North Korea did welcome the Trump administration with um, intercontinental ballistic missile tests, with uh, tests of a thermonuclear weapon, we believe. And things got very tense. Uh, Trump uh, gave his fire and fury comments. Um, There was a real, it looked like, threat of conflict that Defense Secretary Mattis was said to be have been very worried about, that we could have had an outbreak of conflict on the Korean Peninsula. But that shifted. Uh, within a, a year, Kim Jong-un had decided to freeze his testing of long-range missiles as well as nuclear tests. Uh, he extended a hand to the Trump administration and President Trump, to the surprise of a lot of people, did what no, none of his predecessors had ever done, agreed to meet uh, face-to-face in a summit with the North Korean leader. Uh, they met, they had uh, an agreement on North Korean denuclearization, or at least the United States thought it did. And, uh, and, and what we saw after that was uh, a lot of fruitless and failed diplomacy, including a, a summit that broke down in Hanoi, uh, a second summit between the president and Kim Jong-un, in which the president rejected lifting uh, very tough U.S. sanctions on North Korea for only a partial dismantling of one element of North Korea's nuclear program. And while the North Korean freeze has stayed in place, U.S. sanctions have stayed in place, we've had very little diplomatic progress since. And what we know or believe we know from our intelligence is that uh, even though it's been relatively quiet during that time, North Korea's uh, elements of its nuclear and missile programs have continued to grow. There's an expectation that North Korea may present the Biden administration with an unfreezing Uh, of its testing of nuclear weapons and and long-range missiles. So this issue has by no means been resolved. Uh, North Korea may be in some ways uh, stronger, despite all of the uh, uh, good-natured talk between, uh, the personal talk between the president and the North Korean uh, dictator. Not a whole lot was accomplished in terms of America's number one objective in North Korea, which is to get rid of that country's nuclear weapons capability. And what would,
0: you, what would you like to see Biden do? I mean, the place is about as heavily sanctioned as you can get. And you're right, that has had virtually no impact. We've done what the North Koreans have long said, which is,
2: you know, talk leader to leader and we can resolve this. That didn't work. What should Biden do? Well, I think the sanctions are often more in principle than in practice. Uh, We got tough UN uh, resolutions, you know, even Russia and China backed them uh, in the first year of the Trump administration, and that turned up the pressure. Um, But then once the diplomacy started, Russia and China started backsliding. We've had the U.S. sanction uh, both Russian and Chinese individuals and firms for starting to aid Kim Jong-un. And basically, once Trump settled into this, well, I had a summit, it looked good, and now I'm not going to cause more problems, uh, the, the, the U.S. pressure regime started to fall apart. And there actually were a lot of things that were not done. The real, the real move forward to aggressive pressure started with a new law in Congress in 2016 in that regard. Trump put it, you know, further forward. But uh, as much as it's an, a relatively isolated regime, it has found ways to get back into the international financial system and We need to make new efforts to cut that off and make it clear to them there's no way they can really have anything uh better economically if they don't you know compromise on economics that if they um eventually you know keeping their nuclear weapons will be more of a threat to their stability than getting rid of them
0: so guys, we have about two minutes left or so, and i'd like to ask each of you, so in this show, we've only covered a small subset of the chapters in the paper. And I'd wonder if each of you would like to raise one issue that you wish I would have asked about and didn't.
2: Sure. I'll, I'll lead off on that. And I'll say cyber, you know, we know from that, the hack that just happened uh, that it, it's big out there. Um, what's the good news is there was a lot of bipartisan cooperation. There was something called the um, cyber Solarium Commission that was a, a spart- sponsored by car- Congress fully bipartisan put out a lot of uh, practical recommendations. One of the keys is having a national cyber director who can pull together all these different strands of the government that are responsible. And there's signs, several dozen of those provisions were actually in the recent National Defense Authorization Act. Trump vetoed it for other reasons. Congress overrode him. So there really is a lot still to be done. Um, But there's also a lot that was put in place, and we can grow on it, both in terms of coordination, the beginning of some offensive operations. And it's an integral part of the the China challenge as well. Obviously, they're the most dangerous in the cyber realm. Yeah, what I'd say, what I'd say,
3: Mike, is the old perennial of the, of the defense budget. I think President Trump did do important things, particularly in his first year, to really uh, invest in the US military and fill a what was a, a wide and widening readiness gap. Uh, also some important investments in new technologies for our military, particularly in the context of strategic competition. With, uh, with, with China. Uh, I think given everything we face domestically, I think there's going to be a natural inclination. There seems to always be with the modern Democratic Party to target the defense budget. And there's no doubt some waste and, and fraud that, that do need to be trimmed there. Uh, but I think if if defense becomes uh, uh, again, as it, as it was uh, uh, ten years ago, a real political football between the two parties, uh, I, I I think the you know it it could really hurt our ability to pursue a and sustain a, a serious national security policy, particularly again in the context of this this looming threat that everybody agrees exists from China that we've got to plan for and build for and resource for the, not just the next year or two, but for the next several decades.
0: David, John, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you.
3: It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.
0: That was David Adesnik and John Hanna. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin.
0: Your mission is
1: ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio.
2: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail.